0: I'm Scott. I'm Bill. And, and we're, we're The, the Trade, trade Guys. Guys. You're listening to The Trade Guys, a podcast produced by CSIS, where we talk about trade in terms that everyone can understand. I'm H. Andrew Schwartz, and I'm here with Scott Miller and Bill Reinch, the CSIS Trade Guys. On the next episode of The Trade Guys, we'll talk about Jake Sullivan's speech last week. We'll also talk about IPEF and... How the new eu legislation is going to impact u.s companies all on the next episode of the
1: trade guys hello this is trade guy scott thanks for listening i wanted to remind all our listeners that there's still time to register for bills in my upcoming course which is called trade policy crash course with the trade guys it's an online course sponsored by csis executive education It'll be delivered May 22nd and 23rd. It's a deep dive into American trade politics and policy, a seminar-style course, one that's time-efficient from your standpoint. If you are interested and would like more information or you want to register, please go to CSIS.org, click on Executive Education, and you'll find the relevant information. Or you can go to the show notes and follow the link that's there. Thanks, and we look forward to seeing you May 22nd, 23rd. And if you want some great rants, this is the place to go. Yes, it will be a, rant, a rant-intensive environment.
0: You know, guys, there's a jazz fest happening in New Orleans right now. Maybe it could be rant fest.
1: Yes. I'm for that's that. a great idea.
0: There you go. All right, guys, welcome back to The Trade Guys. I wanted to start by unpacking last week's speech by National Security Advisor Jake Sullivan. Mr. Sullivan mentioned that the United States will, quote, unapologetically pursue our industrial strategy at home, but we are unambiguously committed to not leaving our friends behind. What was your take on the speech? And is it possible for the administration to accomplish both of those goals at the same time?
2: No, I don't think so. They've succeeded in irritating all of our allies so far, mostly over the Inflation Reduction Act. And you know what we are doing, a lot of the speech I agreed with, uh, the industrial policy part and a lot of the China pol- part, but the basic trade policy really bothered me at, at, at several levels. I was bothered first by basically dismissing what we've done for the last 75 years in terms of trade policy, which I just think is very short-sighted. You can say what you want about our policy, but what globalization has done since World War II has lift more than a billion people out of poverty. Most of them were not in the United States, but a billion people is, that aren't poor anymore is a big deal. And I think the policy deserves a little bit more respect than he was giving it. I was also disappointed in the implication that all the bad things that have happened in the last 30 years are due to our trade policy. You know, hollowing on our manufacturing base, all the bad things that have happened to workers, inequality are all due to our trade policy. I think I would argue the bigger impact were the trickle-down policies that multiple administrations have pursued, particularly the last one, which have created the inequality that he's complaining about. And to his credit, he's right to complain about it. But assigning uh, or blaming trade for the problem, I think, uh, misses the point. But then to get to your question, they're articulating a policy that is cloaked in a lot of high-sounding rhetoric about sustainability, worker rights, human rights, decarbonization, and all good things. But at bottom, it's a me-first policy. It's what are we going to do to make America stronger? Even when he talks about tariffs, which he sort of dismisses as is irrelevant to current trade policy, which I'll talk about in a minute. But he goes on to say, but that doesn't mean that, you know, that we're not interested in other countries lowering their tariffs. But it's very clear, uh, particularly in private conversations, that what they're not interested in is the U.S. reciprocating, you know, and lowering its tariffs. So it's very much a policy that is focused on, let's do what's good for us. And let's persuade everybody else that what's good for us is good for them. And it was, it's clear in as I said in private conversations that we've had that we asked the question on the Indo-Pacific economic framework, IPEF, what are we offering, you know, to get countries to do these things? And the answer is, you know, our intention is to produce an agreement that, that basically keeps U.S. policies in place. So we're not proposing concessions. We're proposing that, that other people make concessions. I mean, one of the interesting things about that and about the dismissal of, of tariffs is relevant is we had a session earlier this week with a Taiwanese delegation. And it was a Chatham House rule, so I won't mention anybody in particular. But they were all here for the Invest America Summit that's going on. And there were a lot of them. And these were CEOs and and representatives of major Taiwanese companies. And several of them pointed out that in what they hope the United States is going to tackle in their negotiation with the U.S. over a trade agreement with Taiwan is... Wait for it, tariffs. And one company made the point that we have tariffs on imports of chemicals that are essential to semiconductor production. And he commented that, you know, if you want Taiwanese semiconductor companies, i.e. TSMC, to build a fab plant in the United States, one of the things they're looking at is the cost of importing materials that they're going to need to make the chips. And some of those materials are chemicals that are subject to tariffs. So if you take tariffs off the table, which is what we've done, you're making it harder for them to make the, exactly the investment decisions we want them to make. So despite what Jake said, tariffs are still relevant. Look, I just found it confusing,
1: you know, and I'll
2: concede
1: that there is at the moment there's domestic political support for industrial policy. That's different than the past. And I'll accept that that's the, the case now. And so I won't criticize it from that standpoint, but the notion that trade policy needs to get beyond tariffs is breaking news from 1973. (laughs) 1973 was in the Tokyo round. We started negotiating what were called the codes, which were all the non-tariff areas of interest to the members of the GATT. And so it's really a 50-year-old, getting beyond tariffs is something we did 50 years ago in trade policy. All we got to do is look at one of our comprehensive trade agreements and There's a lot of ink spilled on things other than tariffs. Second, you know, this notion that that our allies will think about supporting this, me first, as Bill describes it, industrial policy, I think is wish casting. It really is. I mean, there may be some bargaining, but this is not in their interests. And and I'd be very surprised if, if they let it stand, as he seems to think they will. Finally, it looks to me like the idea of a traditional trade agreement in the mind of Jake Sullivan, is one where there's equality among members and where there are reciprocal obligations. That's the way we always negotiated them because that was good for us. And so now we want to declare what we want to do. And then we try to bargain to get partners to go along with us, like the minerals deal with Japan. So it's confusing speech. I don't know what it means for policy, but Bill's had
2: uh, more experience with that translation. Well, I think what they want the, the other countries to do, particularly the Europeans and some of the other Asians, is to adopt the same industrial policies that we're adopting. I mean, when you talk to the administration, and uh, after the Europeans complained about the IRA and all the subsidies, the first administration reaction was, well, telling the Europeans, well, that's your problem, not our problem. The second reaction was, you know, if you want to solve that problem, you should do what we're doing. And the reality is they are. You know, our calculation is they're spending about as much money as we are on climate-related stuff, for example. They're doing it in different ways, but it's they actually are adopting the same policy. But that's not exactly cooperation, and it's not really reciprocal. It's, it's what we were saying earlier, which is the United States telling everybody else, you know, do what we do, and we'll be happy. And the other countries, particularly in Asia, are saying, for us, I mean, Europe's a different story, but for us in Asia, particularly developing countries... What you want us to do is expensive. Decarbonization costs money, and it means acquiring technology that we don't all have. And labor reform is politically expensive. You know, we maybe it's a good idea, but we've got, you know, a lot of built-in iron rice bowls, which is what, you know, negotiators call them, people that don't want to change anything. And it's politically costly to, to do that. What are you offering us to do that? And the U.S. response is, well, these are good ideas. You should do them because they're good ideas. And I just think that's not going to pay the bill for these other countries. So the reviews are in, and they're not great. The
0: Jake Sullivan speech did not pass the trade guys review process.
1: That's right. Yeah, the Rotten Tomato score was uh, was not what he was hoping for.
2: Well, and I think also, you know, there's he was talking about. The New Washington Consensus. Oh, my goodness. Which was a reference to the old Washington Consensus, which was sort of the, you know, free trade, free market uh, thing that I'm not sure there was ever a consensus on it. But <clears throat> yeah.
0: it, So is, is the consensus that we all don't
2: like China very much?
0: That, well, that, that may about? be
2: the new – if that, that was what he was talking one. about, maybe that you'll find that, partly because China is – busy, you know, alienating, alienating the remaining people that were, you know, willing to cooperate with them. We've had now this series of raids on American companies, detention of Chinese employees of American companies, most of them uh, recently, Bain and Company and, and Mintz, an American due diligence company. These are companies that are operating in China. And one of the, what they do, among other things, is due diligence, which means they figure out whether Chinese potential Chinese economic partners are legitimate or not. And companies like Bain help potential investors figure out if they want to invest in China. And shutting them down is basically the Chinese saying, we don't want you to find out what's really going on in China. Uh, And I think what that does, and when you start putting their officials in jail, the signal to Western companies is maybe we should think twice about investing in, in China. They don't seem to want us to find out the truth, number one. And number two, you know, if I go there, are, are they going to let me out? And this is not the United States government telling people not to go there. Uh, and this is not EU governments telling people not to go there. This is companies deciding for themselves, am I sure that I want to do business there? I presume
1: Jake Sullivan knows that the old Washington consensus was the antidote for industrial policy and resource nationalism. It's what you did to get past the harms created by the policies that were in place in the 70s and that
2: this administration is recommending now. So I can also tell you, I mean, Scott's point about breaking news from 1973 is entirely appropriate. If you talk to the people that broke their backs negotiating intellectual property, right. you know, the uh, environmental goods agreement, which never ended up going anywhere, the government procurement, things that they started doing in the 90s, or even earlier in the 70s. Transparency, trade trade and services, the whole thing. They're all very upset about this speech because they said, you know, these are not new ideas. The trade landscape moved away from tariffs in the 70s and has gotten broader ever since. And so these guys are not, maybe they're reinventing the wheel, but it's not a new wheel. Okay, we've seen this uh, play before. It's the old wheel. All right,
0: guys, let's move on and let's talk about IPEF. What do we know about the state of the IPEF digital trade conversation that's going on so far?
2: Not a whole lot. I think we'll know a lot more after next week because the week of May 8th is a Singapore round where a lot of this is going, I think, come to uh, not resolution, but but something of a head. We had a meeting a couple of weeks ago with our negotiators that was kind of focused on what's already happened. And... I think a lot of text was presented at the previous round, the, the round in Bali, and they're expecting much more of a substantive reaction to that with some counter proposals next week. I think the, uh, the U.S. company view of what the United States is offering is that it's USMCA minus. So it's less than what we are doing with Mexico, that it's been infected. <laughs> there, I would say that's probably their word, not mine by pressure, not only from the, the left, but also now from the, from the right, the far right, not to agree to things in the digital chapter, or actually any of the chapters, but primarily in the digital chapter, not to agree to things that will tie Congress's hands in passing future legislation, which is, and since we don't have a lot of legislation in this area right now, that's sort of saying don't agree to anything. And so USTR is being pushed pretty hard for you know for an unambitious set of proposals to give our negotiators credit they've been pretty clear i think both publicly and privately in rejecting that argument and saying that's not what we're going to do but you know we'll we won't really find out until more time has passed and there's been more talk but clearly the key big issues are free flow of data and a ban on data localization which is countries demanding that companies doing business in their country maintain their data in the country. And if you're a financial institution, that's kind of fatal because what you want to do is, you know, be able to move your data around so people can bank globally and and not just have it reside in a single country. But, you know, the left wing is weighing in and saying there are circumstances where we want to impede free flow of data and there are circumstances where we want to permit uh, data localization. That's a big fight, you know, and that, that's not consistent with current U.S. policy or current U.S. law. And they're trying to make it, you know, they're trying to limit our proposals. So we'll see what will ha- happens. I think there's going to be a big battle about this. I don't know that the agreement is going to come back with anything binding. So there may not be much to fight about in the end. But ultimately, as Congress attempts to take these things up in terms of domestic law, we're going to end up with big fights.
0: So I love it that the negotiators always come to see the trade guys before they actually go to do the negotiations,
1: you know? I mean, as they should. Well, look, and it's they're in a tough spot because negotiators work from U.S. law and practice. And that's that's their baseline. And it's a wise thing to do. It's the thing that allows them to get their agreements through the Congress eventually. In this case, what you have is a fairly vocal group of the progressive side of the aisle who would like something in these agreements that's different from current U.S. law. So that that is the tension, and it's a tension that Congress should resolve on its own by voting on things like Trade Promotion Authority. It's one of the reasons that we've advocated for that, and we're sorry it's lapsed because it makes our negotiator's job more difficult. But that's where the fight really lies. And
2: this is what, this has already been happening. This is what happened when Ambassador Lighthizer was criticized by the progressive part of the Democratic Party for wanting to include into the USMCA agreement a provision that echoed what's known as Section 230 in, in U.S. law, which is a provision of U.S. law that, that holds digital platforms like Facebook or Google harmless from liability for the content that other people post on their platform. The people who post it are not are not exempt from liability but the platform is and there's a lot of people that actually the left and now I think also on the right once again this is the left and the se- and the right ganging up in the center who are upset about that provision and would like to amend it here, and they don't want to see trade agreements that contain that provision. The problem they have is exactly what Scott said. What Lighthizer was doing was exactly what Congress has told USTRs for 30 years to do, which is to get U.S. law into our trade agreements and make our trade agreements as close to U.S. law as we can, can, which in fact is what Jake Sullivan said in his speech and what our negotiators are saying. We don't want to deviate from U.S. law if we can avoid it. The problem that the uh, the left wing has is that they don't like U.S. law, and the answer is if you don't like it, go to Congress and change it. You don't change it via trade agreements; you change it by fighting it out in Congress, and that's a battle that has yet to be fought. What do you think U.S. tech companies? How do you think they should
0: be included in the IPF conversation?
1: Well, look, yeah, there's there's been some criticism of uh, of tech companies. Focus, the focus criticism, at least recently, has been from Senator Warren, who's made it very personal in some ways about, to, about a revolving door. But look, when I read through her materials, my reaction was she's kind of channeling Claude Rains in Casablanca. It's like she's shocked, shocked that there's lobbying in Washington. It, it's like, yes, that's what happens. And more <laughs> importantly, uh, you know, maybe it's Professor Harold Hill. We got trouble with the capital T. That rhymes with P. And that stands for petitioning the government for redress of grievances which is really lobbying is the First Amendment protected right of every citizen. That includes tech companies. That includes people who are former government officials. So I just say I put myself on the side of the First Amendment's liberties and that the government is prohibited from stopping it. Now, having said that, one of the things that negotiators need most is real-life expertise. And the role of tech companies, the role of any business, And in their lobbying efforts is to try to get as much knowledge in the hands of negotiators as they can. It's it's what I did for for 20 years as a a lobbyist, is we know a lot more about the impact, the, the real world impact of any law or regulation on our company. And if we don't tell members of Congress what that is, they'll be the last to know. They'll find out after the fact. That's not good for our business. It's also not good for their constituents. Which tend to punish them at the ballot box later. So that's a very legitimate role. It's one that happens every day in Washington by hundreds and hundreds of people, and it's just uh, usually it's relatively healthy. And yes, sometimes you gain your expertise by working for the government before you work for the tech firm, so you you have you have knowledge that is unique and can be persuasive. So I'll leave it at that.
2: Yeah, One of the people that Senator Warren identified was uh, a friend of ours, Karan Bhatia, who currently works for Google. Karan was Deputy U.S. Trade Representative in the Bush administration. He's the guy that negotiated KORUS, the Korean agreement. If there's anybody that has useful information about IPEF, I would think that it would be somebody like Karan. And it's frustrating to have elected officials saying, you know, we don't want people with expertise being able to talk to the government. We want people with opinions, namely our opinions, being able to talk to the government. The people who actually, you know, know something shouldn't be allowed to do that. And it's just enormously frustrating. I think it goes along with this idea that government is easy and you don't need to know anything to be in government. But those of you out there that do things with groups, test my hypothesis, you know, walk into a group and say, you know, how many of you are ready tomorrow to be a starting quarterback in the NFL? And see if anybody raises their hands. You know, how many of you tomorrow are ready to be an airline pilot, transcontinental jet, and see how many raise their hands? And then ask them, how many of you are tomorrow ready to be Secretary of Commerce? And I bet you're going to have half the people in the room say, I can do that. Yeah, that looks like an easy job. And yeah, that's an easy job. I can do that. And the answer is, no, you can't. It's, it's a different skill set, you know, than flying a plane or quarterback in a football team, but it's still a skill set and there's a knowledge set that goes with it. And the idea that we don't need to benefit that, you don't need to have that is just absurd. It really bothers me that you know, we're we're dumbing down the government by saying you can't talk to people that know anything and you can't get a government job if you're one of those people because of who you worked for in the past.
0: You know, there's a lot of people that think that they can just come on the trade guys and be the trade guys, and you know what? They can't. There's That's no right. Way.
2: We have expertise, too. It's
1: a little easier to be the Secretary of Commerce. No
0: one can come on and do the kind of rants that Bill Reinsch does. Like, that's an art. True. Speaking of rants, let's close today with European Union proposal to require large companies to police their own value chains. What do we think of this, guys?
1: Well, for me, this is the logical conclusion of what they call stakeholder capitalism. And stakeholders are are sort of self-defined. Unlike shareholders, shareholders are part owners in a limited liability firm. Owners have specific responsibilities. That's what we call the private sector. Stakeholders are people who say they have a stake in in things, which they may or may not. It's not far from you know trying to mollify people who have a maybe legitimate, maybe not, but a, a concern to sort of pure on communism. So this is. Europe took a step in the direction where they are really allocating resources and down to executive compensation for whether or not you complete the the promises that we care about, not necessarily what your shareholders want you to do. So it seems like a mess. It, it is, once again, they call it large firms, but the more than a thousand employees is not that big a firm. However, the more I thought about it, the more I realized this is probably the most pro-U.S. Move that Europe has taken in 25 years. And I think they should go forward with it. They should go full blast because it will lead, it will accelerate deindustrialization and unemployment in Europe, probably to the benefit of the United States. And here's what I mean: it's, it's they're they're undermining the reasons that you might invest in Europe in the first place, because what they're saying is we're going to punish you any way we can. The only thing we lead in is new regulatory initiatives to restrict your operations. And by the way, 25 years ago, we were third of world GDP. Now we're down to 25 percent. So welcome to the club. And it's like,
2: bye. The only problem with that is like their Digital Markets Act and Digital Services Act, it's going to implicate American companies as well.
0: Yeah, that's what my question is. is. Is it going to impact U.S. companies?
2: Oh, definitely yes. will. And it's going to make their lives there very difficult. I kind of have sort of mixed feelings about it. You know, at one level, it's kind of the, the ultimate personification of the nanny state. Europeans are saying, we want you to behave this way. And this is all what's known as ESG stuff, environment, social governance priorities. We want you as a company to behave the way we want you to behave. Treat your workers the way we want you to treat them. And some of it is transparency, but some of it goes uh, way beyond that. We want your company to operate according to the value system that we, the European Commission is setting up. It's a level of intervention in the marketplace that really goes beyond what's been the case for the last several hundred years. But you end up talking about when to draw the, where to draw the line. A hundred years ago, when we were arguing over whether there should be well, 150 years ago, when even having a minimum wage or not, you know, having child labor laws was regarded as socialist or, or communist and totally unacceptable. You know, we've come a long way since then. And this is, in a way, one more step to tell corporations that, you know, that you have a certain responsibility to, to the society in, in terms of the, the way you behave. And it's it's riding a wave that really has been begun increasingly by customers because, Company behavior now is a lot more transparent. It's on the internet and people troll what companies are doing and they out companies that are doing things that they think are unacceptable. And now we've got government, at least in the UK, stepping in and and reflecting some of that. There's the the fundamental difference between the US and the uh, EU approach has been uh, essentially reflecting the 30 year plus difference in, in approach to regulation. The US approach tends to be disclosure based. And transparency, you know, companies have to say what they're doing. They have to articulate what their policies are. And then consumers will make up their own mind. If they don't like what the company's doing, then, you know, they don't do business with that company. The EU approach tends to be prescriptive and top down. We're telling you, you need to do it this way. And if you don't do it this way, we're going to cut away part of your bonus. Oh, we're going to do other things to you. And, oh, by the way, it's extraterritorial. We're going to affect U.S. companies doing business in Europe. Uh, and that's, where I kind of get off the boat, I think it's certainly the wrong approach. It's the wrong approach for regulating our companies. And I think it's it's going to have the effect that Scott described, which is it's not going to do them any good economically.
1: Look, uh, transparency is important, but it goes both ways as well. I mean, the, 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 the goals of the ESG investors are often noble. But I think it's really important to look behind the curtain. As an example, before it, coll- it collapsed as a pump and dump scheme, FTX which was the cryptocurrency exchange run by Sam Bankman-Fried had a higher ESG score than ExxonMobil. okay and it was it is now whatever whatever criminality was involved that is a pump and dump scheme somehow they conned all the people who give the the ratings on ESG so watch how the ratings get made and there ought to be as much transparency for the ratings organization in ESG as there are for the companies themselves. That's at least where I'd
2: start. That's really interesting. I didn't know that. So just because you're a good guy on the ESG scale doesn't mean you're not a crook. Oh, just because you say you're a good guy, because
1: often you you say it to the right people, they take your word for it. And that's what happened in in FTX's situation.
0: Well, I say you guys are good guys all the time and it
1: works. So, you know... (laughs) And I hope they believe you. You can catch yourself in there too, Andrew. All
0: right, guys. Great, as always. We'll see you very, very soon. Next week, even.
1: Okay, thanks. To our listeners, if you have a
0: question for the Trade Guys, write us at tradeguys at csis.org. That's tradeguys at csis.org. We'll read some of your emails and have the Trade Guys react to it. You've been listening to The Trade Guys, a CSIS podcast.